Galatians chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Dear Heavenly Father, help us as we study Your Word tonight, or this morning. And Lord, I pray that uh, we'll have an understanding of, of where we are as Bible-believing Baptists, and where you know our loved ones who are uh, in other religions, uh, who follow other practices where they get these ideas, and uh, Father, I pray that this will be instructive to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're a guest with us, we've been going through the book of Galatians for a little over a year, I think, and uh, now we're in Galatians chapter 6, and we're, what's going on in the book of Galatians is there were some people in these, that, that were bringing in Jew, Jewish uh, traditions and laws and trying to impose those views, those traditions, on the believers, the Gentile believers or Jewish believers who were a part of these churches in Galatia. And so the Apostle Paul deals with it in the area of salvation, and he also deals with it in the area of the Christian life. And the idea is very simple, that the Christian life begins with being born again, the indwelling Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that draws us. It's the Holy Spirit that saves us. It's the Holy Spirit that changes us. And then the Christian life is lived the same way. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? That's the question of the Apostle. And the answer would be, of course, no. We continue the Christian life through the Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way. But he's saying here in this text that there are some people who, rather than glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ, they want to require a physical rite, a physical observance. They want that to be imposed on believers. Why? So that they, the leaders, will not suffer persecution. So that they can fit in. And yet what that would do is it would destroy the faith of people who understand that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone that there's no external right that you have to accomplish in order for Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Amen? When we, when we conflate the two teachings, let's say baptism and salvation, when we conflate those two, then there's confusion. When we keep them in their proper place, there's wonderful understanding. There's wonderful clarity. So let's lay some foundation, and then I want to get into the subject of infant baptism and I'll show you from the text where the teaching of infant baptism uh, is, is drawn, from where the teaching of infant baptism is drawn. Um, first of all, last week we looked at what baptism is. Uh, baptism requires three things. It requires the proper candidate, a person who is born again. Nowhere in the Scriptures is anyone baptized who has not believed in either the message of John or the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's clear in the Scriptures. It's always for a believer. Second, baptism requires the proper mode. Baptism is only immersion. That's all that it is. 
That's all that it ever has been. We could demonstrate that for you from history, from... uh, I'll just read you a section. This is Adoniram Judson's sermon. How many of you have heard of Adoniram Judson? This was published in 1846. He preached the sermon in Calcutta in 1812, right after he had become a Baptist. He became a Baptist on the ship, on the way from Massachusetts over to Calcutta on that long voyage. He studied out baptism. And he landed in Calcutta as a firm Baptist. And this is his these, this uh, sermon and this published sermon was his answer to those in the United States who wanted to know why he had changed. And so in here, he says this. He has a list of uh, Protestant or uh, people who would teach infant baptism and what they believe about immersion. Grotius, that baptism used to be performed by immersion and not by pouring, appears both from the proper signification of the word and the places chosen for its administration. Uh, uh, Vitringa, the act of baptizing is the immersion of believers in water. This expresses the force of the word. Thus, it also it was performed by Christ and the apostles. So you know, we could go on and on. All Protestant theologians in the past understand that baptism always was by immersion historically. All right? We'll get to some more of that in a minute. So baptism, it requires the proper candidate, a believer, and that's the only thing you find in Scriptures. It requires the proper administ- or the proper mode, which is immersion, not sprinkling or pouring. And it requires the proper administration. That's in conjunction with a New Testament church. And then baptism can be explained by three words. The first word is obedience. Obedience. We're baptized in obedience to our Lord's command. Jesus Christ was baptized. Jesus Christ commanded that the disciples go and baptize. So it's obedience. It's obedience to the Lord's command. It's obedience to the Word of God. It's obedience to the New Testament principle. It is also, uh, baptism is also identification. When we baptize, we identify with, the, when we are baptized, we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in His baptism. The same way that John baptized Jesus Christ, we are baptized according to the Scriptures. So it is identification with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. It is identification with the Word of God. The Bible describes exactly how we're supposed to do. So it identifies you with a body of doctrine. And then baptism is identification with a local New Testament church and what that church teaches and believes. Now, we went through all of that last week, so if you have any questions on that, get last week's message, or you can get the booklet that we have on baptism. So baptism is obedience, it's identification, and baptism is also submission. When you baptize, you submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you submit yourself to that local church, and that church's authority in your life. Remember, the only authority that a New Testament church has in your life is that authority that you give it voluntarily. We don't make anybody do anything. Amen? So it's a voluntary submission. So baptism is obedience, identification, and submission. And the Bible's very clear on all of those things, and that's been the position of Baptists all through history. And now let me say this. This is something that's been fun for me to study. Um, When you study church history, so if you go in my office, I have all the writings of all the early church fathers, that's what they're called, and you can read through them. Well, for the first 300 years of the church, everybody was a Baptist. That's what's so interesting. 
When you look at what was believed and what was practiced, uh, salvation by grace through faith, baptism only of believers, a regenerate church membership, you had to be born again to be a member of a New Testament church, all of the ways that we function, the autonomy, the independence of the churches, the separation of the government and the church, uh, the authority of the Scriptures, uh, individual soul liberty, the idea that you can't make believers do anything. That's what all Christians believed. Everybody believed that. How about this? Everybody also believed in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was coming back to establish His kingdom. Everybody believed that. That was the general teaching of all the churches until a man named Augustine came along. And he's called the father of the Roman Catholic Church. So that teaching of the church-state marriage, the infant baptism, all of that started with Augustine. He wasn't the first to do those or teach those, but they began, they became the teaching of the Roman church after Augustine. He died around 411, I think the date was. All right, so that's when all that was established. But before that, everybody was a Baptist. Now, if you're here and you're from another faith, you're from a Presbyterian background, Presbyterians were started by uh, John Calvin in Geneva and John Knox in Scotland. If you're a Methodist, those were the methods of John Wesley in England in the 1700s. He was an Anglican priest. If you're an Anglican, that was started by Henry VIII when he separated from the Church of England or from, from the Roman Church. If you're a Nazarene, that came out of the Pentecostals. Where the Pentecostals came out of? The Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s. They came out of the Methodists. The Methodists came out of the Anglicans. The Anglicans came out of the Catholics. So whatever faith you come from, if you are Methodist, if you're Presbyterian, if you're Lutheran, who's the father of the Lutheran church? Martin Luther. Uh, who's the father of the Baptists? Jesus Christ. You see, everyone would trace the Baptists and what they believe all the way back to the apostles. It's the primitive, apostolical is the word that's used in the writings, faith. Everyone was a Baptist. Now, again, if you're here from a different faith, please don't let that be offensive. It's not intended to be offensive. It's just the fact. Again, we can all have our own opinions, but we can't have our own facts. That's the history of the subject. Now, here's the issue. Here's the issue. Where did this understanding of infant baptism come from? Where did it come from? Look at our text. I want you to see something. Verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. All right, so here's what's going on. Here's what happened. Now this, we've already explained, this was some people trying to impose the physical right of circumcision, which had to do with the Abrahamic covenant that we're going to look at in a few minutes. They try, they're trying to impose that on Christianity. So here's what happened, the history of this. Remember, all Christians baptized by immersion and only baptized believers. That's all there was. That's all there was. Now, I'm not going to get into uh, clinic baptism. You know, uh, They called people clinics. Clinics. These are people who were not healthy enough to be baptized, and so water would be poured on them. And that was... Uh, that was a very rare instance, and it was identified as half baptism. It wasn't real baptism, all right? So those clinical baptisms, they took place, and we could really get down into the weeds and look at who did what and what person said this and all that, and you all would do this. 
All right, so we're going to, uh, if someone is going to listen to this on a CD, or if you're here, we have all the documentation for it. We can look at it all, but we're just going to do an, a quick overview of what happened. Well, all believers who were associated with Bible-believing churches preached the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. Nick did good. The rest of you are asleep. Let's try this again. They all preached the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. And see, this is why you can't be a Baptist without a Bible. Our authority is the Word of God, and we're going to get to that in a second. It's, it's the Word of God. And so based on the Word of God, people preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After a person confessed the Lord with their mouth and believed in their heart, the Lord Jesus, after they did that, then they were baptized by immersion. And when that happened, they became a member of that local New Testament church. Now look, here's where we're going with this. We want to understand how in the world did this infant baptism become the norm? How did that happen? Well, when Constantine became emperor, Remember, Battle of Milvian Bridge, 311. He saw this sign of the cross, and it said, In this sign, conquer. And supposedly that was his conversion. He didn't receive baptism by sprinkling or pouring until his death. He never actually became a Christian, but what he did was he united Christianity and the state. All right? So with the the Edict of Toleration in 313, he said that the Christian faith is now going to be the state the religion of the Roman Empire. So now, here's what happened. This is where this became so important and so dangerous. In order, listen, in order to be a citizen, you had to be a member of the state church. Right? You couldn't be a member of the state church without being baptized. Because baptism is the door to the church. Scripturally, that's true. Baptism is the door to the church. But the teaching of baptismal regeneration, that a person is born again by being baptized, was the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church beginning with Augustine. Okay? So that marriage took place under Constantine, and this is where the baptism issue became so important. If you were a citizen, you had to be a member of the church. To be a member of the church, you had to be baptized. And so that was baptized as a baby, and that baptism put you in, made you a member of the state church, also a citizen of the country. So your baptism and your citizenship were the same thing. Now, later on, when John Calvin separated from the Catholic Church and started the Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Switzerland, it was the same, same situation. Zwingli did it in Zurich, Switzerland. Luther did it in Germany. If you were going to be a part of that state, you had to be a part of the state Church, when the founders came to the United States, came to America and established the colonies, they had state churches. So if you were not a part of the state church, you couldn't be a part of the state. So baptism became a very serious issue and millions and millions and millions of people were killed for rejecting infant baptism all through history. Now, we've discussed that. I don't have time to get into the details of it. It would be a really good study for you to get into on your own. So that's the history of the subject. But now here's the problem. If you're going to have a church, and if the church is going to say this is what the church teaches, then they have to find some warrant for that teaching in Scripture. Right? They have some defense from Scripture. And this gets to our discussion of authority. 
For the Baptists, we would say that the sole authority for the church, for the believer, the sole authority is the Word of God. Is that right? So we can say that there are really only four groups in Christianity. Now, how many of you understand that there's a lot more names than that? But there are really only four groups in Christianity. Only four. Only four. The first is traditional Christianity. And their authority, they have dueling authorities. Two authorities. The Word of God and tradition. How many of you have ever heard this? Tradition says, tradition teaches us. How many of you have ever heard that? How many of you have heard, tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down? Right? Tradition says that Peter had a mother-in-law without a wife. No, different discussion. <laughs> that would be insanity. Okay? So their authority is the Word of God and tradition. But if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and tradition, then tradition, of course, overrules the Word of God. So who are these people who believe that? Well, Roman Catholicism and most of the mainline Protestant denominations. They would say the same thing, that their authority is the Word of God and tradition. Is that clear? And an example of this would be purgatory. How many of you have heard that some people believe that when they die, if they're not righteous enough, they go to purgatory, and if you pray long enough and hard enough, that they will suffer and pay for their sins in purgatory, but you can pray them out of purgatory? How many of you have heard that before? Okay, where is that found in Scripture? Is the word purgatory in Scripture? Any reference to a middle state between, uh, between this life and eternity? Is there anything? No, no. It's completely made up. Completely fabricated. That's tradition. And what's the main issue that goes on in Catholicism? Get people out of purgatory. <laughs> it's, it's just all tradition. It's all tradition. So there's that group. Then the second group. So first is tradition. Their authority is the Word of God and tradition. Tradition always overrules the Word of God. The second group, charismatic Christianity. Charismatic Christianity. And they have dueling authorities, and their authorities are the Word of God and experience. The Word of God and experience. And here's how this works. Someone will say, I had this experience. God, I, I was in this meeting, and we were all speaking in tongues, and the Holy Spirit came into the place, and it felt like my feet were ten feet off the ground. How many of you have heard someone explain something like that? Right? And you say, well, the Word of God says this. No, no, you don't understand. You weren't there. So what's their authority then? Their experience their experience. I have vertigo. Yesterday, got up on a ladder with Pastor Nathan. When we, well, we weren't together on the ladder, but we were outside together. And I got up on the ladder, and I got to the top of the ladder, and I almost fell. I had to grab the ladder. I got this vertigo. And so sometimes, in, in the past, it's been so bad that I, I could lay on the bed, and the whole room is spinning. Mackenzie, is the whole room spinning? How do you know? You weren't there. <laughs> love that. Um, now, honestly, is the room spinning other than the fact that the whole globe is spinning? Other than that, is the room really spinning? No. No. You see, the, 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 the reality should overwhelm my experience, should overrule my experience. And the reality of the Scriptures must overrule the experience. Amen? We test everything by the Word of God if that's our authority. So in the charismatic movement, there are dueling authorities, the Word of God and experience, and if there's ever a conflict, then the experience overrules the Word of God. The third group, the third group, modern evangelical Christianity, and they have dueling authorities, and their authorities are the Word of God and scholarship. 
The Word of God and scholarship. I know the Bible says this, but Dr. So-and-so says this about this, so this must be true. It's amazing. The relying on sources is so important in evangelicalism, and it goes even farther. When you look at a footnote in your Bible or you're reading a commentary and it says this, well, a better word would be, this verse is not found in the best manuscripts. There's no way for you to know what the Word of God is unless you know Dr. So-and-so. So what's their authority? Dr. So-and-so. So in modern event, I'll put it this way. Um, if you have anyone who tells you that you can't understand the Bible, that you can't understand the Bible without someone telling you which verses are supposed to be there and which ones aren't, then who's their authority? Their education, not the Word of God. Amen? So dueling authorities, the Word of God and scholarship, and if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their scholarship, the perfect example is this. John MacArthur, when he finished preaching through the New Testament, he, his last book that he preached through was Mark, the last 12 verses of Mark, his last sermon, I've got it, I can play it for you. He's all excited that the Word of God is true, even though those last 12 verses in Mark aren't really supposed to be in your Bible. So what's his authority? It's not this. Amen? It's not this. The Word of God and scholarship. And then there's the fourth group that we try to fall into, and that is the Word of God. That's it. God said it. That settles it, whether I believe it or not. Have you seen that bumper sticker? When I was a kid, it was out. God said it, that settles it. Or God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Have you seen that? Yeah. You, don't, you don't belong in the equation. Because if you had never lived, God's Word would still be true. Whether or not you believe it, God's Word is true. Amen. All right. So, authority. Authority. When Constantine, Augustine, a little bit later, and, and these authorities in the Roman Catholic Church when they began to try to appeal to the Scriptures for this practice of infant baptism, they couldn't find it. Now, I, I do want to say this. For the first roughly 1,300 years, 1,300 years, baptism was only immersion. If you go to Europe and go through the old cathedrals, all these old cathedrals have a baptistry large enough to immerse. Because that's all baptism was. Clinical baptisms, I've already mentioned to you what those were. Rarely you would have a, 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 a sprinkling, um, but baptism was always by immersion. The, the subject was infant baptism. Now, why did they begin baptizing infants? Why did they do that? Well, so that they could be a part of the state and under the control. That's one reason. The second reason is the, belief, is the teaching that baptism saves Remember, the Catholic Church teaches that there's no salvation outside the church. Have any of you ever heard that statement? There's no salvation outside the church. How do you get into the church? Baptism. Baptism. So, here's the teaching. If baptism is the door to the church, there's only salvation through the church, then we need to get everybody baptized that we can. So, let's go conquer a nation and baptize everybody. It's really good for them for us to do that. Or how about this? Because the infant mortality rate is so high, because babies die, let's get them baptized so that they can go to heaven. 
Clinical baptisms. The person was not healthy enough to get baptized, so we're going to go sprinkle them. Well, if they're not healthy enough to get baptized, what's the big deal? Well, if they've got to go to heaven, we've still got to baptize them. Amen? That's why Baptists don't do clinical baptisms. If you tell me you want to get baptized, but you're not healthy enough to do it, we say, sorry. It's okay. You're still going to heaven. Jesus Christ still loves you. God knows your heart that you want to do that. If you're able to give a testimony of your faith in another way, praise God. But if you can't be baptized, you can't be baptized. That's, that's the teaching. Why? Because if it's not baptism, ready? It's not baptism. So it doesn't matter then. So that's, where, that's how this infant baptism thing became so important. So where do they go to find support for infant baptism? Now, I want to do this for you so you can get an idea of the significance of the discussion. This is, I told you, Judson's sermon on baptism. And man, he makes so many great points in here. I can't believe how good this is. I just read it for the first time this week. Um, and that's significant to us because we've talked about Adoniram Judson here a lot as a church. And to see his statement on baptism, it's unbelievable. This is a book. This was printed in 1818. And it's called A Treatise on the Mode and Subject of Christian Baptism in Two Parts, designed as a reply to the statements and reasoning of the Reverend Adoniram Judson as exhibited in his sermon preached at Lal Bazar Chapel, Calcutta, on the Lord's Day, September 27, 1812, and recently republished in this country by Enoch Pond, pastor of the Congregational Church in Ward, Massachusetts. All right? Aren't these titles hilarious on these old books? That, wouldn't, that, wouldn't, that would not fit on your iPhone, that title. <laughs> just wouldn't work. Um, and this whole book, is a, this is all an answer to... Judson's sermon. These people were serious about this. Uh, I'll show you something else. You know the song, um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That was Robert Robinson. Robert Robinson was a Baptist preacher. And he wrote this book in 1790. This is a, an original copy from 1790. And this is The History of Baptism. Can you imagine? This is a serious subject and has been for centuries. Um, it's just, and this is just a beautiful copy. He, he goes through the history of the different baptistries, the different types of baptism, uh, going through all the different parts of the world. That here's in the time of Tertullian, and it, it goes through history of baptism. Um, that's from the Baptist side. This book, this is The Christian Minister's Reasons for Baptizing Infants and for Administering the Ordinance by Sprinkling or Pouring of Water by Stephen Addington. This is printed in London in 1771. This battle has been going on for a long time. It's been going on for a long time. Now... You know, this book, William Cathcart, famous Baptist historian and author, this is Baptism of the Ages, and he goes through history and identifies what baptism has been all the way through history. This one was printed in 1878, and this is just a, a fantastic little book. This one, John T. Christian, Baptism in Art and Sculpture, he went all through Europe and 
looked at art and the museums and the different sculptures and demonstrated what baptism has been all through history. Um, this is his book on immersion, demonstrating that. Now, we all understand. How many of you here understand what baptism is? And you might be thinking, well, Pastor, why are you spending all this time on it? We know. How many of you have a loved one who participates in a church that would practice infant baptism? We need to understand the discussion. So here's the approach of the Scriptures. Now, we talked about authority, right? And what's our authority? The Word of God. That's it. How many of you have heard of John Calvin? Anybody? This is John Calvin's commentary on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, in John chapter 3 um, and verse 22, the Bible says, And after these things came Jesus and His disciples into the land of Judea, where He remained with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because there were many waters there, they came, therefore, and were baptized. All right? So here's his comment. This is John Calvin's comment. Now, you understand, John Calvin did not like us. Right? Here's what Calvin said. The evangelist says that there were many waters there, and these were not so abundant in Judea. Now, geographers tell us that these two towns, Enon and Salem, were not far from the confluence of the River Jordan and the Brook Jabbok, and they add that Sikathopolis was near them, all right? From these words, we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging the whole body beneath the water. Though we ought not to give ourselves any great uneasiness about the outward rite, provided that it agree with the spiritual truth and with the Lord's appointment and rule. All right, so he says it's clear that Jesus Christ and John baptized by immersion, but don't let that cause you uneasiness about what we do. It's the spiritual issue that's important. Remember, this is the guy that killed somebody for not believing the way that he did. Right? Okay, here is his commentary on the book of Acts. Remember Acts 8.37, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the eunuch says, Here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he stopped the chariot. They both went down into the water and he baptized him. Okay, that's verses 36 through 38. So now, here is his comment on that. This is John Calvin again in his comment. Um, Whereas the eunuch is not admitted to baptism until he have made confession of his faith, we must fetch a general rule hence, that those ought not to be received into the church who were estranged from the same before until they have testified that they believe in Christ. Now, that's a good statement, right? He's teaching what the Word of God says. That's a good statement. So, hey, Calvin's right on baptism. Here's the next sentence. For baptism is, as it were, an appertenance of faith, or connected to it, follows from it. And therefore, it is latter in order. So, baptism must follow faith. He's teaching that. Secondly, if it be given without faith, whose seal it is, it is both a wicked and also too gross a profaning. So, to baptize someone who does not have faith, it's wicked and it's a gross profaning of the right. That's what Calvin says. Y'all agree with that? Now, it's not a sign and seal. That's, a, that's covenant theology, but that's 
who, who is really the originator of covenant theology? John Calvin. Now, look at what he says then. But frantic fellows do both unskillfully and also wickedly impugn baptizing of infants under color thereof. Okay, now I want you to get this. We are always accused of being unskillful in the word, uneducated. I know it says that, but you just don't understand. Right? Those of us who are stupid enough to believe what it says, we're just ignorant. You simpletons, you can't just believe what it says. You need me to explain to you what it really means. Thank you, John Calvin. Now, why was it meet or acceptable that faith should go before baptism in the eunuch? To wit, because seeing that Christ marketh those alone which are of the household of the church, with this note and mark, they must be engrafted into the church who are to be baptized. And as it is certain that those who are grown up are engrafted by faith, so I say that the children of the godly are born the children of the church, and that they are accounted members of Christ from the womb, because God adopteth us upon this condition, that He may be also the Father of our seed. That's perfectly clear, isn't it? So baptism in the Bible, of course it was by immersion, and of course it only followed belief and faith. Of course that's what the Bible says. And if you corrupt that, it's wicked, it's profane. Of course that's the clear teaching of Scripture. But of course we see that God chooses who's going to be saved. And if a child is born into a Christian home, a home of believers, well, that child is automatically saved. He's a part of the church. He's a part of the promised seed. That's what Calvin just wrote. What is that called? Heresy. Heresy. Where do they get that? Where does that teaching come from? And now you'll see the connection with Galatians chapter 6. Go to Galatians 6 with me. I know this isn't the easiest stuff to listen to. I wish that I was a better entertainer for you. But this is stuff that we need to know. So let's, let's look at it. Galatians 6 and verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be what? Circumcised. Go to Romans chapter 4. Talking about Abraham, look at verse 11. Romans 4, verse 11. And he received the sign of what? Circumcision. Now, what did Jews require? A sign. Was Abraham a Jew? The first one. Father of the Hebrew race. Is that right? And he received the sign of circumcision. Uh, what's it say there? Seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being, what's it say? Uncircumcised. Now, you've got to get this. What the, what the, the Protestants, the, they're called pedo-baptists, pedo for child, infant baptism. What the pedo-baptists teach is that circumcision was the sign and seal of the old covenant and baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant. So those two covenants are linked together. 
And so you have to have, just as you had to have the sign and seal of circumcision in the Old Covenant, now you must have the sign and seal of baptism in the New Covenant. And since children were, bapt- were, were circumcised, so babies must be baptized. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, except it's found nowhere in Scripture. So where did it come from? Well, the Catholics had to come up with a way to explain scripturally, to scripturally explain infant baptism. That's where it came from. You say John Calvin wasn't a Baptist. He he was he, or wasn't a, a Catholic. He had he he separated from yeah, but he didn't separate from that. He kept it. It's called replacement theology, and so the teaching is that the covenant for Abraham now applies to the church. The old covenant was to Abraham. The new covenant is for the church. You say, really? Is that what they believe? Here, let me read to you what B.B. Warfield said. I made reference to this in the Sunday school class this morning. Listen to what B.B. Warfield said. Now remember, B.B. Warfield is considered the greatest of the fundamentalist theologians. He's one of the fathers of the fundamentalist movement fighting against the modernist. He was a Presbyterian theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary. I believe it was Princeton. Patrick Princeton, right, for Warfield? Yeah. All right. He said this, quote, It is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament. Okay, we're done. But not for Warfield. No express record of the baptism of infants. And no passage so so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that that, that infants were baptized. So listen, here's what he says. There's no express command. There's no express record. And there's no passage implying that we must infer from them that that infants were baptized. Now listen to what he says. If such warrant as this were necessary to justify the usage, we would have to leave it completely unjustified. But the lack of this express warrant is something far short of forbidding the right. And if the continuity of the church through all ages can be made good... The warrant for infant baptism is not to be sought in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, where the church was instituted, and nothing short of an actual forbidding of it in the New Testament would warrant our omitting it now. Now, I know it's hard to listen to stuff. I probably should have put it on the screen for you. But what he just said was, of course there's nothing in the New Testament, but we don't have to have anything in the New Testament. Since the church began in the Old Testament... We've got to go to the Old Testament to find our understanding of infant baptism. Now, we still have a problem. (laughs) How many of you see many problems with that statement? Now, remember, this is the the key theologian in the Presbyterian Church in the late 1800s. This is the man, B.B. Warfield. Now, look, this is where this becomes so interesting. The Bible says, "...study to show thyself approved unto God." a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So what's Warfield doing? He's wrongly dividing it. Remember Jesus Christ at the Last Supper? What did he do? He held up the cup. And he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Amen? That's that's where the New Testament began. Does a person have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a member of a New Testament church? You got to believe, right? Death, burial, and resurrection? Were were these Old Testament people believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? They didn't know anything about it. They didn't know anything about it. Let's refresh our memories. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. 
Verse 31. Jesus Christ and His disciples. Then He took unto Him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge Him, and put Him to death. And the third day He shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. They didn't know anything about the death, burial, and resurrection. Is that what the Bible says? These are the disciples of Jesus Christ. These are the ones preaching that the Messiah is here. The New Testament had not begun. Why? Because Jesus Christ hadn't given the New Testament in His blood yet. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's allow the Word of God to speak for itself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in every time Mass is said into the holy place, having obtained... What's it say? Once. Hmm, I wonder what once means. Yeah. Look at what it says. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death... Wait a minute. So the mediator of the New Testament by means of what? This cup is the what? New Testament in my blood. Look at what it says. It says, For this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the what? First Testament. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. All right? So now look. The Bible makes it very clear. The New Testament began with the death of Jesus Christ. Is that right? So how in the world can you have a New Testament church before the death of Christ? Well, you've got to have a doctor tell you that. You know, a theological doctor. Well, I understand that the Bible says that, but you just don't under... You're ignorant. That, that's all that they've got. I'm serious. Or like our little skit, I'm serious. <laughs> that's it. So now, let's look at a couple of the verses, that, they, that really the only verses in the Bible that they have to use and will be done. Um, obviously, I didn't get to what I was going to do, uh, but this will work. 
Go with me. Oh, this is so good. I've got to read to you what Adoniram Judson said. He said this. So in the case of infant baptism, it is not necessary for us to urge one argument against it, nor is it sufficient for the proposer to prove that every objection is groundless. It is requisite for him to prove that is that it is obligatory. The question with every parent ought to be, am I under obligation to have my children baptized? Now, on what grounds is this obligation predicated? We should naturally expect that the baptism of infants, if enjoined at all, would have been enjoined in the law which instituted the ordinance of Christian baptism. But this law is silent on the subject of infants. Has not Christ, however, left some other command in joining infant baptism? Not one. Have not the apostles who were entrusted with the, uh, the farther communications of the will of Christ left some command on this subject? Not one. Have they not left us some example of infant baptism? Not one. Have they not spoken of baptized infants and thus given us undeniable intimation of its practice? No. In no instance. On the contrary, whenever they have spoken of baptism or of those to whom it was administered, their language implies that baptism was a voluntary act of worship and the baptized professing believers. As many of you, said Paul to the Galatians, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ Jesus. That's it. That's it. I want to read you one other thing from Judson that was so good. He said this. Go to uh, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I told you I was going to do this and I had forgotten. So Genesis chapter 17. This is the covenant where circumcision is instituted. And so these covenant theologians, they believe that there's a link between the first covenant and the second covenant. They would call the first covenant this and then the new covenant is grace. And so look at verse 7. Genesis 17, 7. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. All right, do you see that? So now, since the, and here's the teaching. Since the Jews rejected Jesus, that covenant now falls on the church, on Christians. And so the seed that the promise is on, what Calvin was talking about for the seed, the children, he could be the father of their seed. What he's doing is he's taking this Abrahamic covenant and applying it to the church. So now here's Judson answering that, Adoniram Judson. Or for Josh Ferrier, it's a dinner ram. All right, now. I now ask the Christian parent, is this the covenant which God has made with you? Has God covenanted to give you these blessings? Though He may have covenanted to give you some of these blessings together with many others, the question must be repeated. Is this the very covenant which God has made with you? If on examining the several parts of the covenant you feel authorized to answer in the affirmative, I reply, you are under sacred obligation to, to perform your part. You are under sacred obligation to circumcise, or if you are satisfied that baptism is substituted, to baptize every man-child that is eight days old, him that is born in the house, or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. 
It is in direct disobedience of the command to baptize before the eighth day or or to defer baptism beyond the eighth day. It is an entire departure from the command of God to baptize a female child or to withhold baptism from one that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. God has in no part of His Word released you from your obligation to baptize on the eighth day, nor has He required you to baptize a female child. Who hath required this at your hand? Nor has He released you from your obligation to baptize the servant born in the house or bought with money. But I ask again, do you really believe that God has promised you the very blessings which He promised Abraham and his seed? Do you really believe that God has promised to give you the land of Canaan, even that land in which your father Abraham was a stranger? If not, whatever blessings God has promised to give you, whatever covenant He has made with you, it is not the covenant which He made with Abraham and in which children were connected with parents. Is that awesome? He just nails it. That connection of the covenants is completely contrived. You cannot find it in Scriptures. All right, now, let's look at a couple of the passages that they're going to use, just so you can understand and be able to answer them. Then we'll be done. Well, go, to, go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So this is the story of Paul and Silas, the Philippian jailer. Go to uh, verse 30. So remember, they've been beaten, but they're singing praises to God. Earthquake happens. The Jailer runs out and he feels like everybody's going to escape, so he's going to kill himself. And he says, no, they say, no, we're all here. And so verse 30. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Look at this. And thy house. So here, this is where they're building their case for infant baptism. There must be babies in the house. That's brilliant. You see how you have to really be educated to get that out of that? Look, let's read on. Um, And they said, verse 30, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. Now look at what it says. And to all that were in his house. So now, if you're holding a baby here, if I'm preaching and persuading you, I'm not persuading that baby. That baby can't comprehend what's going on. So he is persuading all that were in the house. He's speaking to all that were in the house. That implies that all were able to hear it. Okay? But let's see if we can get that from the text. Because if I'm implying something that's not specifically written, then I am just as, uh, as flawed in my understanding as the Pedobaptist. So let's read the text. Um, verse 32 again, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them, and he, and he took them that night, or I'm sorry, and he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God. What's it say? With all his house. See, this is the thing that's so important. All of his house were taught the truth. All of his house were baptized. Why? Because they all believed. Now, I want you to find infant baptism in that passage for me. And yet, this is the key passage they use to prove infant baptism in the New Testament. What does that help you understand? 
They have no proof. There is nothing there. Now the next one, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. Day of Pentecost. Apostle Peter preaching. Now, at the day of Pentecost, who was gathered together? What is Pentecost? It's a, it's a, what, kind of, what nation is that a feast for? The Jews. All right? And if you look with me at um, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye women of Judea, What's it say? Men, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. Okay, so now this is to the men of Judea. This is a message for the Jews that are gathered together on the day of Pentecost. That's the message. Now, go to verse 38. Or verse 37. Now when they heard this... Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of what Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, so that's the culmination of the sermon. Do you see that? So what had the Jews done? What had the Jews in Israel done? They had rejected Jesus Christ. Not only had they rejected Him, they killed Him. Is that right? So that's the message that he just preached to him. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord of glory, Lord and Christ, you killed him. That's the message. Now look at their response, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now remember what the... Philippian jailer said, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What's the request here? What do we do? Israel, we've rejected our Messiah. What should we do? Well, the apostle, or, or John the Baptist had already told him, hold your place right here. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Don't lose your place in Acts. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Sins about what? And John was clothed with camel's hair and clothed with a girdle and with a girdle of skin about his loins and he did eat locusts and wild honey. He was a dude. Verse 7. And preach, saying, 
There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. All right? Your Messiah is coming, and he's going to baptize this whole country, this people of Israel, with the Holy Ghost. He's going to do that. Is that what the Bible says? All right? Now, they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected Him. Is that what happened? This is the beginning. Jesus Christ then comes. They've been baptized, identifying with their Messiah. Now they have to receive the Savior. Go to Acts chapter 2 again. Remember the message? John preached baptism for the remission of sins, baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Look at verse 38. Verse 37 again, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What happened? This is the message that John was preaching. You as a nation, you need to acknowledge your national sin of rejecting the Messiah. And then God will send the Holy Spirit to you. But then look at the next verse. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So what's going on in this passage? These people have rejected the Messiah. Now they have to reject, now they have to accept their Messiah and their Lord who has risen from the dead. But how do they have to acknowledge that? The same way they had to acknowledge their national sin under the ministry of John the Baptist. They had to follow it with baptism. Now, here's where the, uh, I had to explain that text to you so you could understand it. Look at verse 39. This is their, their evidence. This is the baby baptizer's evidence for baptizing infants. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as uh, the Lord our God shall call. All right? Now, that's perfectly clear. Infant baptism is expressly demonstrated in that verse, isn't it? How many of you are having a hard time seeing it? The idea, here's what they have. It's all part of the Old Covenant. See, they're, they're taking a Jewish context of a, a physical seed God promised making His covenant with the physical descendants of Abraham. And they're still saying that, look, I want you to see this answer. They rejected Him as their Lord. He says, He is your Lord. Then what did they say when He died, when they, when they asked for Him? Let His blood be on our heads and on our children's heads. Here's what God says. Look, I love you. I want you to be saved. I want your children to be saved. You repent of that sin. You repent of it. Repent of it, and I'll be your Lord. I'll be your Savior. There's nothing here about the children being saved. There's nothing here about the children being baptized. doesn't have anything to do with the text. doesn't have anything to do with it. So here's my point. They have no authority in Scripture for infant baptism. It's completely false. It has sent more people to hell than any other thing in Christianity because there are people that believe that as soon as they get baptized, they're a part of the, the church. Here's why. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto Him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace 
and of His engrafting into Christ of regeneration, of remission of sins, uh, and of His giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in His church unto the end of the world. Outward, The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, by a minister of the gospel, lawfully called thereunto. Dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Although it is a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that they are baptized, that they that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and confirmed by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in His appointed time. Anybody clear on baptism now? So it is a sign of those who believe, but you don't really have to believe to get it. It is a sign of regeneration, saying that you're regenerated, but not necessarily everybody who receives the sign is regenerated, and not necessarily those who don't receive the sign are regenerated. But if you get it, it's a sign and seal that God will regenerate you. Is everyone clear? How about this? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen? Amen? And then... After you're saved, you get baptized. And that makes you a member of the New Testament church. It tells the world that you follow the Lord and that you, that, that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you're consciously and willingly leaving your old life and saying, I'm going to follow the Lord and I want to live for Him. Which one's easier to understand? Well, then why is 95% of Christianity wrong? Why? It's the lie of the devil. It's the lie of the devil. Uh, I've got a book by John Gill. John Gill was the pastor of the Park Hill Church. The, or the, anyway, it doesn't matter. It became Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon was pastor. And he wrote, this, he wrote a little booklet called Infant Baptism, Part and Parcel of Popery. It all goes back to the Roman Catholic Church. That church that has condemned more people to hell than any other Christian institution. And every church that practices infant baptism, every church that practices infant baptism, most of those people believe that they were saved through their baptism. Look, Lutheran Church, Martin Luther, Augsburg Confession. Here's what it says. On baptism, that it is necessary for salvation. That's what the Lutheran Church teaches. That is not scriptural, folks. So what have they done? They have conflated, back to Galatians 6, they have conflated circumcision with infant baptism. And just as Paul said, we cannot require, we cannot require a sign in the flesh as a part of our faith. They have taken that sign in the flesh and required it to be part of the faith, substituting <laughs> baptism for circumcision. The thing, the exact thing the Apostle Paul was addressing is what they have done. So let's go to Galatians 6 and see why. Will be done. Listen, that football game last night was still in the first quarter by the time I'm done with this message.
Amen? Hey, look, this right here, this 140 pages or whatever, that was Judson's sermon on baptism. wonder how long that took to preach. All right, Galatians chapter 6. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, verse 12 again, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution. What's it say? For the cross of Christ. If the cross of Christ is enough, if that's enough, well then all of those who want to add something to it, they will persecute you if you disagree. And it's been that way for 2,000 years. So you know what? All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Let them say what they want. Let them say what they want. Listen, if a person is not baptized in a New Testament church, aligning with right doctrine, they are not scripturally baptized. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. I hope that you're born again. I hope that you've placed your faith and trust in Christ alone. So many times I ask somebody, are you a Christian? Yes, I was baptized at such and such. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ makes you a Christian. If you're resting in your baptism for your eternal life, you are going to split hell wide open. You and Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and Chairman Mao and Charles Manson, all of those people who have gone to hell, if you're trusting in your baptism, you are right with them. That's offensive, yes. It's very offensive. And that's why it's called the offense of the cross. All of us deserve hell. That's why Jesus Christ came and died. The only thing that can save you is faith in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. If you're trusting in something else, some physical right with the Apostle Paul, I say this, I'm not going to glory in anything but in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word. Lord, we've covered a lot of material.